Dr. Kel Pirro, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. It's lovely to be here. It's lovely to have you on the show. We go way back, don't we? We do. I was thinking the other day, how long have we known each other? And I can't quite remember. <laughs> it's been a long time. I can't either. It must be decades. Well, maybe not decades, but it's been over a decade. It has. It might be 15 years. You know, let's let's say. It might be. Yeah, yeah. let's say. Yep. And we, we met uh, originally through the theater community here in Ottawa. Now you're no longer in Ottawa. You're in uh, Stratford, Ontario. That's correct. And uh, so you've done something really interesting with your career because I'm going to give a little bit of background info before we we deep dive into what you do, which is that you uh, have a PhD in English and now you own a company called KMP and Associates. You do, you specialize in communication. So like writing, editing, research, social media, web design, translation, the list goes on. (laughs) Tell me... How does an academic with a PhD in English get into this business? Well, um, that's, as they say, a good question, Julie. And uh, I think in my case, what happened was that I was completing my my doctoral studies and my area of specialty is actually Renaissance literature, early modern literature, as it's called, and particularly um, kind of religious poetry by women. And um, I had pursued that thinking originally that I, you know, would like to stay in the academy. I would like to be a scholar. But um, as I got toward the end of my studies, I thought for a number of reasons that maybe that wasn't for me. And I was kind of wondering, you know, what to do. And I had a, a friend actually who worked for um, a quite large placement agency, and she she was the one who um, got me to look at my skills in a different way. She, and, and this is something that I've gone on to help many people with, because you know, when you when you have been in graduate school, you tend to think that every because everything is so focused on preparing you for. Um, for a career in the academy, you kind of, you know, lose a bit of perspective on on some of the things that you're learning to do. And she was the one who said, look, you know, these are the things that you can do because of the experience that that you've had in graduate school. And that actually, that was really life-changing for me because it changed my perspective enough that I was able to look at um, the notion of, of doing other things uh, for a living. So I started out um, in the nonprofit sector, um, when I, you know, was finishing, or actually when I was still in graduate school, when I was still doing my PhD, and then when I finished, I was in uh, the federal government briefly, and then I uh, worked for ten years. I had a, a fantastic job. I, I was really, really fortunate. I worked for the, um, well, for a nonprofit called the Canadian Federation for the Humanities and Social Sciences, which uh, is of course still in operation, and it's uh, the organization that puts on what is known in the academic community here in Canada as Congress, that is the Congress of the Humanities and Social Sciences, which is normally held at a different Canadian university every year. Now, as you can imagine, in 2020, uh, that that didn't take place because 2020 was that year when nothing nothing took place, really. And uh, this year, it will be uh, take place in a virtual form. But normally, Again, it's held at a different Canadian university every year. And so as a result of this, I did get to, you know, to to visit all these different university campuses across the country. And uh, I got to get to know a whole lot of people who were outside of, of my discipline because 
what I did was I managed something called the Aid to Scholarly Publications Program, which was a program that helped scholars in the humanities and social sciences publish their book-length works of scholarship with Canadian scholarly presses. And um, so I got to meet, you know, just a, a fantastic range of people who um, had expertise that had nothing to do with mine at all, which was great. You know, I really, I really got to, uh, to know a lot about a lot of different people. And after a decade of that, my personal circumstances changed and I was going to move here to Stratford and I decided to strike out on my own. Um, I had, uh, before I should say that before I, I did my PhD in English, I'd actually studied modern languages. So I studied French, German, Spanish, and also Irish. I'm Irish myself, as you know, and, um, I, I had, that was kind of my first love. So when I moved here, I decided that I would, um, try to, you know, start as, as an editor, mostly a scholarly editor. And I had been doing some of that kind of on the side mostly for um, for an online editing outfit. And so I contacted a few people I, I knew because, of course, I did get to know a lot of people in Canadian scholarly publishing, and I still know many of them, and I, I very much uh, treasure them. They're really neat people. And so, you know, people would say, oh, well, I'll recommend you to so-and-so, or here, you know, somebody gave me a, a very nice man who's since retired at one of the um, one of the scholarly presses not far from where I live, actually, uh, started me out on indexing, for example. And um, I just kind of started to build from there. So, you know, it was mostly scholarly editing and then it was indexing. And basically, I'm the kind of person who's happy to turn my hand to anything that, you know, people are willing to take a chance on me with. And um, I was very fortunate in that within about, I'd say about two years, um, all my work was coming to me via word of mouth. So um, that's lovely, obviously, because that means, you know, you don't kind of have to go. I, I mean, I would do a certain amount of development, as, as one calls it, but um, I wouldn't really have to go looking for work. People came to me. And as a result, I've been able to, um, you know, read, I mean, a, a depth and breadth of stuff that I would never, ever have read otherwise, just because, you know, it wouldn't necessarily occur to me or I wouldn't necessarily have the time if I were doing another job to pick up this book or that one. And so I did that, and then I've just I just recently started um, doing um, translation, and I'm currently uh, doing a book for University of Michigan Press on Georges Méliès, who was an early uh, French film pioneer. It's a fantastic book. It's a biography written by his late granddaughter, and you know, so so even now I'm kind of I, I'm always interested in trying new things and in getting into new areas. And um, I've got a lot of work. It's it's very demanding. You know, when you're kind of a one-woman band, I do have a couple of people uh, who work for me as contractors, but really it's it's mostly me. And um, it, it's just been, you know, I've been incredibly fortunate. I've been able to turn something that I really enjoy doing into, into a nice living. So that's, I hope that's not too long-winded, but that's kind of the story of it. Well, actually, what, what I wanted to know is... Um... Now that I, I know more of a broader, the broader scope of what you do, I'm really curious when you were at the stage where you were just starting this business, did it take a while for you to get used to having the kind of freedom of making your own decisions, making your own choices, and 
perhaps even feeling a bit overwhelmed by that, as opposed to when you're in the academic system, when everything is pretty much laid out for you. Yes. Well, of course, uh, to be fair, people, let's say, who are, you know, academics who are um, working as scholars and as teachers in the university system, um, you know, have a, they have a lot of decisions that they have to make as well. But certainly there is more structure there. You're quite right. And yes, I think I think the thing I, I didn't I don't think I found it overwhelming the sense that, you know, I was um, that I was the person calling the shots in a sense. But I think the thing that was overwhelming, and I'm pretty sure I have this in common with everybody who's ever started any business of any sort, is that, you know, every waking hour you put into it, right? And you have to do that. Like you really have to, you know, work your tail off at the beginning in order to establish yourself, in order to learn new things, in order to learn what you like and what you don't like. And of course, learning what you don't like is at least as important as, as learning what you do like. And I, I think that um, I, I know that certainly by about, because I, I really started uh, in about mid-2012, and for about the first year and a half, like at, at the end of, of 2013, um, I was pretty zombie-like by the time, by the time the Christmas holidays came around. I was pretty toasty um, because you know, again, you're just you're you're at that point. You're pursuing work again, trying to establish your reputation, trying to um, produce work uh, of both sufficient quality and at sufficient speed that people will say, "Hey, this is this is good. This is somebody I want to work with again." So I think that was the thing that really, you know, uh, the big difference between. Um, working for myself and working in a more structured environment as I had done before that. Okay. So I do know that you also counsel people who are doing their PhD. What I am actually most curious about, because I've interviewed a lot of scientists, I've spoken with a lot of scientists, and I've networked with a lot of other you know academics, whether they're uh, historians or whatever. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them really do want to get out of the academic world. They mm-hmm. want to do things like science communication is a, is a growing field right now. Right, right. So what would you say to somebody who perhaps wants to follow your path and create their own business? Well, um, there are a couple of things I'd say. And the first thing, if it's okay uh, for me to say this, this I think this will possibly speak to some of the people that that you're mentioning. Um, when I was in graduate school, uh, if you wanted to talk about um, having a kind of an alternative career, it's now known as alt-ac, that's alternative academic. At that time, that didn't exist. And I literally remember talking to a prof of mine about, I can't remember exactly what it was about, but it had something to do with working outside the academy. And he literally kind of looked around, you know, you know, the way people do kind of in movies, like to see if anybody is listening, because there was this sense that um, if you, if you were doing that, it was somehow second best, or it was this kind of, you know, some sense of failure was attached to it. And of course, I thought that was nonsense, because it is. And um, I think I, I don't know how much I mean, this can't this hasn't um, obtained for a little while, at least in the humanities, because um, partly just as a matter of necessity, people with PhDs in the humanities and often in the social sciences have had to look outside the academy for work. But the thing is that one of the reasons, too, that I think um, I think people who want to, as you say, let, let's say, for instance, get if they're scientists and they want to get in science communication, I think that's absolutely vital work. 
because um, a constant refrain, for instance, when I worked for what we call the Federation, the, that nonprofit organization, uh, for a decade, one of the constant refrains was, you know, people don't understand what we do. That is, people who are outside the academy don't necessarily know really what a professor of just about anything does, you know? And, um, and of course, there's, there's a lot of important stuff going on, not just in the sciences. They're obviously in STEM. Uh, there is a great deal of important stuff going on, but there's also a lot of important stuff going on in the humanities and social sciences of the sort that, for example, helps us to deal with some of the uh, troubling, uh, say, political and social situations that we're seeing literally right now around us. That's the place where kind of people, you know, when, when people go want to understand things like this, they, they read um, political science, they read psychology, they read poetry, they read things like that. So anybody in any of those disciplines who wants to leave the academy and um, wants to, in particular, not exclusively, but in particular have anything to do with um, communication in that field, I think that's an enormously important area that is still quite underdeveloped because communication of the tremendous amount of knowledge that's accumulated and circulated within the academy is something that, you know, I guess, I don't think it's overdramatic to say it has the potential to, to save the world, if you know what I mean. Um, mm -hmm. And save the world in, in every sense, in in every way from, well, look, if we're going to do something about climate change, we really need a lot of scientists who know about climate to help us. Everything from that to how do we get ourselves out of, you know, um, let's say in the case of the United States, what do we do with the fact that, you know, we seem to be nearly in, in a civil war situation here? That's the kind of thing that, um, that science isn't going to solve, but a lot of social sciences and humanities stuff can help. Uh, to, to solve massive problems like that. So um, so I would say, first of all, to anybody who's doing that or anybody who wants to leave the academy and do their own thing um, in any way, um, I would say one of the key things is, again, first of all, remember that, that what you do is important. You know things of value and you know things that other people, you know, want to know and need to know. And you also, and, and this w goes back to where um, this friend of mine years ago, you know, looked at, at me and said, look, you have all this skill and that skill as a result of your training in graduate school. Um, that is something that people, again, don't always have a good perspective on. So if you have done a PhD and uh, let's say you've been, I don't know, te teaching, I don't know how long that the people you've been speaking with uh, who would like to leave tend to have been in the academy. Let's say you've been there for five or 10 years. Well, you know, you've got five or 10 years uh, worth of experience in managing people, in managing time, in giving presentations, that is when, when one lectures, in assessing work, um, you've, depending on, on, your, um, on your field, you may have more or less um, experience in things like writing, again, reports, etc. So there are a whole lot of very practical, transferable, and marketable skills that go into really certainly the pursuit of any PhD that I've ever encountered, and um, that definitely get kind of honed and developed if you have been in the academy and have, and have taught for several years. It's funny, you've just introduced me to a new term, alt-ac, mm -hmm. for alternative <laughs> academic, which yep. is kind of hilarious, really. Um, but the reason I bring that up also is because you've touched on a topic 
that is very near and dear to me. I I was dating an academic at one point in my life, and I suggested to her that she write a pop culture book mm-hmm. as an alternative career, as in like, you know a lot about this topic. Why don't you write a, a book for the general public? Mm-hmm. Because you'd be excellent at it. And and she just she, it was shocked that I even brought it up. And I didn't know that this was a problem in academia, that especially in a field like, for example, history, mm-hmm. I mean, God forbid you were to write a a book for the general population instead of a, a very specific uh, audience. Uh, do you find that that's still a, a major problem? Um, there's no question that the academy overall, I think I can still say this with, with confidence, the academy is a very conservative place in some ways. Um, and there is no question that a certain number of years ago, yes, you know, I mean, you could do that if you wanted, but that was going to be your little hobby and you might not want your colleagues actually to know about it. I think that that is changing now. And I, I think to, you know, just to, to make something clear, um, the kind of publication that a lot of scholars in a lot of, of disciplines uh, need to produce it is a very, you know, it, it is a very specialized and specific kind of writing because, of course, the idea is supposed to be that it is uh, ideally, as the saying goes, making a substantial contribution to the field. So, if you're a historian who is an, uh, an expert in, I don't know, the Crimean War, let's say, you know, and, and that uh, that era, then um, the the notion of what kind of publication will be required from you as a rule for things like uh, promotion and tenure, that's going to be something fairly specific. Now, it seems to me that a, a lot of people, I admit I'm, you know, I'm a nerd and of course I read academic stuff all the time because of my work. But um, if you have, a, you know, a passion for for your field, and your field is especially, as you're saying, something like history, um, I don't see much of a reason why you couldn't, why you couldn't write a very snappy and interesting book anyway, if you know what I mean, even even if it is a, a very scholarly work. But um, so th- there is there is a role for that kind of work. And I can appreciate why, because the idea is that you are contributing to knowledge in a field that is is adding to something that's bigger than you, and it's bigger than your rep, and it's bigger than your CV and all that. You were trying to make a contribution to the general store of knowledge that uh, with any luck, you know, humanity has in your field. Now, I think the thing that has changed now and that is changing, and certainly um, I think that that scholars, it, again, it varies a little bit depending on what your field is and what university you're at, but I think for the most part, scholars, as long as they're doing what they need to do, there's no need to hesitate anymore over that more um, popular or say trade oriented book that you might want to write, go ahead and do that. Um, many um, institutions are now kind of more used to looking at that as a kind of a bonus. It's again, if you have somebody, particularly if you have somebody in a department who, you know, it, it gets some media attention for, for example, because if you have a, a book that, you know, makes a bit of a splash um, and then uh, you attract media attention as a result of it. Well, you know, your department and your university uh, get a certain, uh, there's a kind of a certain reflected glory there, right? So um, there's no question that that used to be a thing. And it it depends, again, where you are and what your field is. But I think that as long as people are um, are doing the scholarly work that they need to do, 
I think they should go for it. They should, you know, write what they want. And I wouldn't necessarily have said that 20 years ago, you know. Right, right. Of course, that makes sense. I, Kel, I interviewed a science marketer recently, mm-hmm. and we spoke about the importance of storytelling and marketing, mm-hmm. that it really makes a difference when you're writing a blog article or several blog articles, um, whether you're trying to persuade somebody or inform them or, or, or even entertain them, that you use a proper s- storytelling, that it should be fun to read and engaging. Uh, you edit, I'm sure, a lot of manuscripts. And um, do you find that, or rather, let, let me rephrase that question. How do you ensure that somebody who has written a manuscript has done it in a way that's engaging for the reader? Like, how does that work? Well, that's that's a good question. There's an extent to which, of course, I, I don't have a whole lot of control over that simply because um, I, I mean, unless I'm doing um, a very kind of deep, um, you know, kind of structural or, or formational edit with somebody who is kind of just getting started. And I tend more of, I mean, I can do that, but more of the editing I do tends to be copy editing, line editing. It tends to be uh, stuff that's done when when a person has already really got something fairly well together. Um, but the thing that, that I that I usually focus on because again, you know, you, when you're dealing, I, I deal with works in a lot of different areas and they, while they are all telling stories, some of them of course are telling um, much more, uh, much more dense, much more complex and much more difficult stories than others, if you want to put it that way. And um, you know, d- hard things sometimes uh, require difficult and complex vocabularies, etc. Not not everything can be made as open and, and as accessible as maybe we would ideally like. But again, those are often uh, those are books that are re- uh, are written for specialists in particular areas. The thing that I find um, is most important overall, virtually, uh, whatever one is is trying to do in whatever field one is in, is the fairly simple matter of clarity. Now, that would seem to be an enormously obvious thing to say, and it should be, and it is, but clarity is something that I think any anybody writing any book, it really does not matter whether it's scholarly or trade, children's book, a novel for adults, anything at all, when writers of any sort really get into their story, you know, whether whether it, uh, whether it is a story, shall we say, that's told or not, when they get into their material, it's very, very easy to lose perspective. And you kind of have to do that, you know, and it, to a certain extent. If you're really entering into your material and you really want to take something and get your feelings about it, your knowledge of it, your takes your findings, if you want to get that out there, you really have to to sink into it. And that's why, of course, it's one of the primary reasons why um, bringing an editor in is a good idea, because an editor is, as they say, another pair of eyes, but it's also somebody who has a completely different perspective, pardon me, from yours on whatever you're working on. And the thing that I find is that um, sometimes, in fact, quite often, authors kind of get, um, they're so inside their own heads with what they're writing, that of necessity, they're not really, let's say, seeing uh, as they write how they may be making certain assumptions um, about things that aren't kind of, 
you know, they, they aren't assumptions that you can make on the part of a reader. So they may have written something quite well, and it may be very informative and very dense, but it, it often lacks that last bit of, uh, again, of clarity, of elegance that um, kind of builds a bridge between the author's work and a potential reader. And again, I think that that goes whether one is dealing with a very, very specific um, scholarly work or, you know, a kind of a more popular uh, trade work. And I think that 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 is the thing that that I look for the most. And that is the thing that I've encountered um, the most often as an editor is um, there, there's a and, and again, sometimes it's it's very simple stuff. It's just it's just saying, you know, making sure that you, okay, a reader read a mention of this, you know, 10 pages ago, uh, you've got to bring that back and mention it briefly so that he or she will still be able to stick with it. You've got to make sure that your context is clear. You have to make sure that you are taking your reader clearly along the path that you want him or her to go. That doesn't mean um, that, you know, you're, you're handholding to such an extent that, I mean, you, you can you can expect that uh, an intelligent adult is going to be able to follow what, what you're writing if, uh, if you're writing clearly. So it's not a matter of, uh, you certainly don't want to condescend to a reader and it's not a matter of pandering, but it's a matter of being very clear about where you want the reader to go because that's how you um, stay in some control of your narrative which particularly when it comes to scholarly work is is really really important. Yeah, it's interesting because with uh when it comes to clarity, it's it's you know, it, that's something that you you just hear over and over and over again from high school all the way up to university and even you know, further on in life, mm-hmm. later on in life. And so I'm curious about the editing process. I'm I I mean, I don't know anything really about what an editor does other than correct mistakes and improve the style, perhaps. Uh, if somebody submits a paper to you, what's the first thing you do? Well, the first thing that I do is I I have a, a fairly good look over, you know, a fairly substantial part of it because, of course, one of the first things that I'm generally asked for is um, is a quote, right? What, how much is this going to cost me? And um, I know a lot of editors who work on an hourly rate. I don't tend to do that. I tend to quote by the job. So, and I, I like to do that because then the um, the client knows exactly, you know, what the bottom line is, and so do I. So, as I always say, there are a thousand words and a thousand words. You know, a thousand words written by someone who's experienced, who is a good writer, etc. That's one thing. A thousand words written by someone who perhaps has has never written anything in a sustained way before, or somebody who, you know, maybe English isn't his or her first language, etc. That's going to be a, a different a different thing. So, the first thing I do is kind of assess that partly again just for the practical uh the practical matter of the the practical fact that it uh helps me figure out what the fee is going to be but it also helps me um get a bead on how long it may take to edit this um there there is occasionally i mean this this i don't tend to do the kind of work or have the kind of clients now where this happens much but certainly in the past um you know i i might look at something and say you know this really this isn't ready to be edited yet there is more work that needs to be done and uh so you tend to kind of um just to clarify again this may be useful in this respect there are different kinds of editing as you say so if you get somebody who's 
who's got something that's not really quite together yet or who is looking for help with shaping something or finding direction, then that's usually called developmental editing because you're literally trying to help an author um, develop an argument or develop a plot or, you know, just develop their story. There's also structural editing, which tends to uh, be, and I'm, I'm, not everybody has is going to have the same definition of these, but these are the working definitions that I use. Um, if you have something that's more or less finished, but you know you look at it and you think, oh, this needs to be taken out, that needs to be moved over there, you need to add something here. You know that that's a kind of a next stage of, of um, editing that allows you to to help really fill out and strengthen the edifice that is that is your work. And then there are things like uh, copy editing, um, which is where you do go through, as you say, you you correct um, spelling and grammar, you um, may improve style, or you may make suggestions about style. And then there's proofreading, which is the very final element, which changes very little. It simply corrects spelling and punctuation and things like that. Um, so the first thing that I that I do is kind of look at this, and of course, generally a client will have told me, "Oh, you know, I've okay, I've got this book. I'm due to submit it to. Let, let's assume this is a scholarly work. I'm due to um, admit it to the or submit it. Pardon me to the um, publisher on such and such a day. And you know, I'm feeling fairly confident about it, but it needs a copy edit, and I would like you to look out to see if you know if anything strikes you as out of place, etc. That's probably the type of editing that I do the most frequently, and I would think overall that um, outside of, uh, and and I may be wrong about this, but I'm I'm just going to you know guess kind of based on my experience, outside of you know publishing houses. <laughs> pardon me, where they're dealing with um, novelists. Pardon me while I just take a sip of water here. Mm. Yeah, no worries. Take your time. Um, there, I, I think most of the the editing that most people would be likely to get done in their lives is kind of at the copy editing and proofreading stage with some kind of line editing, which is has a little more to do with style, um, probably the, the second most frequent type after that. Um, I have a, a bit of a quirky question for you. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm curious to know if there are any words that you hate seeing on paper. <laughs> oh boy, that's um, that's a good one. Um, I don't think that there are any words in particular. There are certain you know kinds of mistakes that really, and, and you know me well enough to you know to know this. Um, oh, there yes. are, oh yes, there are like the whole lie lay thing. Oh my heavens. I see people saying laying when they mean lying all the time. And, um, that is getting to be more of a norm now. It's still wrong. And I'll always say it's wrong. <laughs> and I try to remind people that you, so, you know, it's, it's things like that. Or, um, for example, actually fun. Well, it, the situation wasn't funny, but this little bit about it was, um, with the whole thing that went down in the U S last night, this, uh, I, I think he's a senator, I'm not sure his last name is uh, Hawley, uh, you know, Joshua Hawley, one of the people who objected to the electors' uh, votes. Um, he used the word irregardless, apparently, in, in his speech, and it was all over Twitter. Everybody was saying, oh my God, he, on top of everything, he used irregardless, which in fact is not a word. The word is regardless. But it, because language is a growing and fluid thing, 
Um, I believe there is at least one major dictionary that now has irregardless as a word in it. No way. Uh, oh, yeah. And it's just, I'm sorry, uh, that'll never be okay with me. I will go to my grave saying that kind of thing is wrong. Um, so you know, it's funny, actually. I just want to comment on mm. that because I started watching The Sopranos for the first time. Oh, yeah. And yes. there's one of the characters, I think Polly, keeps saying irregardless. And I always get like shivers because I'm like, no. Yep. No, yep. no it's, it's not irregardless. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I know you murder people. That's not so bad, but it's irregardless. No, it's really, it's really true. So that kind of thing um, does tend to bother me, and I, I know that that's my own quirk. But as I used to say, you know, when, when I was teaching at the university level, and I used to just, um, I teach um, essay writing usually to students who were not um, English students. That's that is, they were not specializing in English. They were not getting a degree in it. And I used to say to them, you know, because it, it was something they had to take. Often they weren't very enthusiastic to be there and about being there, pardon me. And I used to say to them, look, um, you know, you can you can do whatever you want with this course. That is, I, I cannot um, compel you to put a lot of effort into it. But I said, I want you to know that if you choose to kind of turn away from the things that this course is going to teach you, you are... Um, willfully and voluntarily pushing away from yourself actually a, a pretty important source of power and that is you know and I said to them now this was this was a, a rather a long time ago when the internet wasn't quite as ubiquitous as it is now but I said you know if the day comes when you need to write a letter to a landlord or you're writing a cover letter something of course people often still do looking for a job I said if you come across in those documents as not very bright. It doesn't matter what you're like. You are not very bright as far as the person on the other end is concerned. If you have a good command of language, if you can command it authoritatively and elegantly, and you know you know how to punctuate, you know how to spell, you know what you know what forms of there to use. That's actually um, that has an influence that I think people really even well maybe especially now tend to kind of downgrade. And um, to me, it's it's an important, you know, it's an important tool in the toolkit of life that if you have the opportunity to uh, learn to to write well, you don't have to be the world's greatest writer. But if you can learn to command language, it's it's a source of power. It is. And yet, in the eyes of many, especially today, you would be seen as old fashioned. <laughs> so let's talk about that for a second here, because there is a school, a new school of thought that thinks or believes that um, context is more important than how the words are spelled mm -hmm. or how sentences are formulated. And I I'm, I'm torn because I understand on one hand, and on the other hand, I also understand the power that it carries. Um, what are your thoughts on it? You, you still strongly believe that it is essential to learn how to write properly. Well, I, and in fact, I did a, a post on LinkedIn about this a couple of um, a couple of years ago, and I think it was called something like, you know, why correct English matters. And the thing is, Julie, that, that both those things, everything that you're saying there, it's all true. So, um, and, and I think it, you know, it's the binary way that we have in the West of thinking about just about everything is probably part of what contributes to a conflict when I don't really think there should be one. Uh, context is a lot. Now, when I, you know, would, would talk to my mother or my aunts or something, uh, relatives who are close to me, I might not use the same, uh, the same tone of voice. My, you know, my, 
I don't know, my accent, whatever, my delivery might sound a bit different from the way it would if I were um, delivering, let's say, a, a lecture to the Stratford Festival here, which is something I've, I've done for a number of years, right? I'll do talks on various shows. Um, the way in which um, people spell and the way in which they speak uh, always kind of depends on context. It always changes with context. And if you are talking about um, written, the written word, if you're being understood and you can understand the people around you, then you're golden, you know, because if, if you can't understand, if you can't be understood and therefore you can't get what you want or need, that's a problem. So at the most basic level, all that's about is, do I understand, you know, how to, I don't know, buy milk or how to, to write to this person and say, uh, I need you to pick me up at five o'clock or whatever it is. You know, if, if you can do that and you can understand what comes back to you, then language is working for you. It's doing what it was meant to do. But um, just as context matters in that case, context matters in other cases. In cases where, for example, as when I was talking about the, the cover letter or a letter to the editor or a letter to a lawyer or whatever, um, people who don't know you, people who don't know your context, people who may never have seen you, you know, think of all the, the strangers we communicate with. Um, if you're dealing with people who do not know you and your context, that's where language, I think, tends to need to serve us differently. And that is, of course, one of the reasons why, in fact, it's the main reason why any language has ever standardized things like its spelling, right? Um, writing, the whole notion of the standardization of the written word in, in any language is to allow people to understand each other when their context may not cross. So that, um, for instance, the you, you know, we've we've all heard, for example, how a speaker of Mandarin and a speaker of Cantonese um, may not be able, they, they may not be able to understand each other because those two languages are not mutually intelligible when spoken. But when written, both can understand the language. Um, that may be, and that, that's what I've always understood. I'm sure if you have any listeners who um, are familiar with Mandarin and Cantonese and say, no, 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 that's not right. They will, they will let you know and you must let me know. But that's just, that's certainly a popular example anyway. Um, and uh, obviously it's a very specific one, but the idea is, you know, if, if you, you can write in whatever way you want to your buddies when you're texting, but if you're going for, um, if you, if you want a job interview, or if you're trying to get somebody to, to, let's say you want to interview someone, you know, that you don't know, um, if you're trying to go into a context outside your own, a mastery of a more standardized version of whatever language you're communicating in uh, is useful. So if you don't want to do that, I mean, that's that's up to you. But again, it seems to me, and, and, and you may think, you know, people may think that's too bad, it's unfair. It's, well, I guess it is. A lot of life is unfair. But uh, the idea is that, uh, you know, to me, it's just the acquisition of another skill. You're acquiring the ability to use language in a way that is going to serve you well. And that often means that you uh, may need to learn how to use language in ways that are not just native to your own context. Yeah, I found, I mean, I, I grew up with a mother who at one point in my life read my diary and corrected all the spelling mistakes. This oh, you're is how kidding serious me. she was. Oh, no, oh, no, wow. no, no. This okay. is how she was very serious about making sure that I could write well, mm -hmm. uh, even if it you know, came to invading my privacy. Yeah, I was going to say, there's but, a bigger issue there. 
<laughs> yeah, it's okay. I've forgiven, I, I've forgiven her. Um, my point, however, is that it has served me really well in the corporate world. You know, as a manager, what I found very interesting, actually, is that a lot of my superiors did not know how to write. Oh, yeah. And so it became almost a game of, um, how could I put it? I suppose it became a, a game of trying not to be too smart sometimes, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. just because it's not as valued as it used to be. So I found myself being able to write really, really well and then trying to communicate with people who were not. Mm-hmm. And so that balance is very interesting in the corporate world. Well, and the thing there too, and I know what you mean, and I've certainly, you know, I've seen that myself and I've heard other people express uh, similar, uh, similar sentiments. And I think though, the thing, the thing there, and again, it depends on what area you, you, you work in, but you know, if you do, um, if you can yield language confidently, and of course, you know, that doesn't mean that you go around and you use every four syllable word that you know, right in in every, you know, uh, in, in any given email to someone. But um, when you get to be known in your field or in, in your office, anywhere at all, as someone who can yield language well, um, I think that can pay its own kind of dividends because then people, you know, if people feel they can approach you, then they'll come to you and they'll say, look, you know, I need help with this or we want to put you in charge of, of you know, the ultimate, um, say, production of um, certain important documents, pardon me, for for your business, et cetera, because it is, it is a skill like any other skill. And, um, yes, it is unlike some other skills. It can, people who can be, you know, whatever, obnoxious about it, or just not careful, not tactful, um, can maybe come across as being a little, um, again, aggressive or condescending or whatever. I never, honestly, I never worried about that too much myself. But generally, I think that um, if you work in a place with smart people, uh, offices full of smart people like to recognize the talents that are around them, right? And you like to to play to the strengths of the people who are working for and with you. And if you've got somebody who's got really good, um, a good skill with language, good written language, that should be a person whose skill you want to develop and nurture and you want to exploit for, you know, exploit in the, not in the pejorative sense, but you want to be able to use that person's um, skill to help with your, your business outcomes. So I think that, and, and I, I certainly do think that um, in an age in which, you know, ironically enough, we, people tend to think that, that we don't read as much as we used to, but we read all the time, right? Because we're all sitting in front of screens and every place has a website. And um, I have had this this conversation with clients and potential clients, and it, it's very much like the conversation that I would have all those years ago with those undergrads. You know, your copy, what you say on your website and how you say it it needs to be sharp. It needs to be exactly what it should be. It needs to be correct. It needs to be um, uh, clear and appropriate for the context, along with being things like, you know, as um, search engine uh, optimization has to, to kick in there too. Localization does as well. But the idea is that the written word is what people are seeing. So I would think that now, again, depending on what your field is, there's there's a little more you know sensitivity to the fact that if if you've got somebody working with you who's good with words you've got an advantage and you should be taking you should be taking advantage of that rather than 
you know, I don't know, being jealous or intimidated or any of the silly things that, that sometimes insecure people in an office can feel, you know? It also, you bring up copy, which is, um, I find, correct me if I'm wrong, and I'd love to, to get your, your perception on this, but I find that there's a lack of Canadian copywriters. Um, at least in my circle, I don't know anybody else other than you who really writes copy. Hmm. And it's, uh, it's been hard finding copywriting talent. I had a marketing company a few, about, I don't know, seven years ago. And I was looking for a copywriter and I couldn't find anybody locally. Really? Uh, yeah. And uh, nowadays with the freelancing market that has changed, mm -hmm. but uh, the mastery of language is also an opportunity to have a career in something re language related, like what you do, like copywriting, mm -hmm. for mm -hmm. example, even, even just a skilled copywriter in the marketing world is worth so much money. Well, well, that's good, Julie. You and I will have to talk about this after. Well, no, but it's true because look at the advertising world. Yeah, you know, look at the look at the this is a great documentary called Art and Copy. Mm -hmm. I recommend it to you if you All haven't right. seen it. No, but I haven't. also to everybody else. Oh, it's fantastic! Hmm. It talks about how they used images and copy to sell things in the past, like mm -hmm. Nike. Uh, just do it, right? For example, right? Right? right. It's perfect. Yep. Yep. So, and everybody it. Yep. Precisely. So I find that what you're saying is very, uh, it's very clear. It's very clear because uh, at least people who master language have more career opportunities. Even. Well, well, that's certain, and that's certainly one of the things that, again, I have said to many uh, people in graduate school come, you know, say, oh my God, I, I don't want to go on the academy. I kind of don't know what to do. Um, certainly, I think, I, I do um, joke to my husband often, I say, my God, I'll never be out of work because I pick up anything. You know, I, I, I look at anything on the internet and either things are just poorly written, they're full of mistakes of one sort or another, or they're, and, and I, I am really stunned by this at times, the amount of, as you say, of marketing copy out there that is, for instance, just, just as an example, missing basic information, you know, <laughs> like there's a lot of marketing stuff out there and you think, wow, if, if I were this person's boss, I think I'd fire this person because th there's just, it doesn't, not only does it often not have the elegance and punch that good copy should have, good marketing copy should have, but again, often it's like, okay, so this is great. So what is it or where is it? Or, you know, something basic that should be in there that's not. I'm, I'm really astonished at how common that problem is. But I do think that probably, I'm just going to venture to say one of the reasons for that, or a couple of the reasons for that, may be that, um, you know, you, you do get, especially with very young copywriters, they often um, haven't come out of necessarily a, a, an educational background. I don't mean just post-secondary. I mean, right down to, to kind of primary school. They haven't really been taught a lot about language and uh, they haven't been taught any grammar. They, they also don't read a lot, right? Because reading is still the number one most important way to become a good writer of any sort, as far as I'm concerned. So they don't necessarily have a lot of depth with that. Um, they're young as well, so they're not experienced anyway. And then what they really are focused on are, are two things. They are focused on something like SEO, which, you know, they may or may not know how to wield um, 
in a in a really skillful way. And as you know, you don't need me to tell you if you're ham fisted with it, you end up kind of undermining yourself, right? Because for instance, Google will will kind of see through it. And rather than it uh, rather than SEO doing what you want it to, you end up kind of undermining yourself and, you know, getting knocked down the queue. Um, but the other thing too, is that a lot of them are going for, they're going for the, the just do it. They're going for the short, sharp shock of, of um, a very, very recognizable marketing motto, which is fantastic. I mean, that's why people pay advertisers big bucks, but that's not the same as, again, good, elegant, clear, funny copy, engaging copy. That's not the same as good storytelling. Um, none of those things, you know, those are those are all kind of different uh, different things. And I think a lot of copywriters now, possibly especially younger ones, just don't have the kind of background that's going to make it easy for them to uh, to kind of clue into that. That again, that's just my take on it. Others may may find that quite wrong, but that's the sense I get. Uh, there's an excellent book um, called Scientific Advertising, written mm -hmm. by Claude Hopkins, uh, written in 1923, actually, oh <laughs> and. It is still the Bible of advertising, and it's uh, it's brilliant. Uh, I recommend it to anyone who who wants to learn how to write with precision, essentially. Mm -hmm. and, and the author is just—it's funny because it's old English, right? I mean, it's nineteen twenties. <laughs> very much modern English, but well, I know you I mean, mean. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, oh, yeah, it's you a very different you know, style, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's a very different style, but it's a style that I can really appreciate, I have to say, but mm -hmm. precisely because it is clear, like like we already have spoken at great length about. Um, I want you to settle something for me oh, oh, between okay. me and my between between me and my girlfriend. Mm -hmm. Uh Oxford comma. Yes or no? Oh yes. Absolutely, definitively, yes. And yeah. I, have, I have a very good friend who I love and respect enormously and who is a very, very experienced writer. And he will fight you to the death for a no on that. So, you know, uh, but no, I, I, again, to me, it's a yes. And it's a yes because of clarity, right? It, it just makes sure that, you know, you never get in, you never get into one of those, you know, eat, shoots and leaves situation. Do you remember the, that book from a few years ago? Yes. So, yes. or, you know, or let's eat grandma, well, let's eat grandma's is not a, not an Oxford comma situation, but punctuation is all about clarity. And again, it's about emphasis. It's the thing that takes the place of, in a sense, the actor's voice. Right. And, uh, I'm very, very pro Oxford comma. So. All right. Well, it's the only argument that my girlfriend and I have had is uh, about the Oxford comma. Well, I think on her first date. I, and I think I knew right then and there that she was the one because we had something kind of quirky to to fight about. It's really so, good to uh, get that argument out of the way early too, you know, so yes. now you know, right? Yeah, yeah, no. You can kind of decide whether you can live with different positions on the Oxford comma, you know? Exactly. Um, I just, I mean, we have about, you know, 10 minutes left. I really want to touch on acting because it's something that you did for a very long time. We've talked mm -hmm. a lot about writing and editing right now. Didn't even get to ch a chance to talk about research or anything <laughs> else that you do. But I do want to talk about acting. Uh, first of all, 
you're not an actress anymore, are you? No, I haven't really acted since I came here, uh, partly because, you know, I mean, I, I've, I've auditioned for the Stratford Festival and I had a very good audition and that was great because I just wanted to be able to say to myself that I had done that. But, um, you know, outside of the festival, I mean, there are other theatre things that go on here, but, um, you know... The, not not a lot. I mean, it's there. There actually, this isn't a very big city, obviously, and in larger centers, there are more opportunities. But the fact is, too, that I've <clears throat> I'm only really now reaching a point where um, <clears throat> I can look at my business and say, you know, I, I need to make some decisions about um, kind of scaling back certain things so that I can have a little more time to myself, etc. And so I I just wouldn't have had much time to pursue it. Um, since I've been right, here. and you did you did theater, which is yeah. uh, I mean, I did theater in Montreal mm. for for about what two years, one mm. year, two years, and it's um it's quite a job only because especially when there's a script mm-hmm. and you have to remember all the lines. <laughs> yes. uh, uh, what was your trick to to remember lines? Um, actually, I, I think honestly it wasn't so much a trick as it, as it was kind of part of the way I was raised. My mother, um, again was, you know, being Irish was a very good storyteller and she had, she had memorized quite a lot of poetry and she kind of encouraged me to do the same when I was very, very small. So it got, and of course, as you know, children love rhymes and so forth. This is one of the reasons why we all find it um, so easy to to remember certain rhymes is that they're kind of made stick in our heads. So we often start kids out with that. So I think it was just that from an early age, I um, I started to uh, memorize things because I, you know, I, I loved poetry. And sometimes that say when I would wake up in the middle of the night and I couldn't sleep, I would recite uh, certain pieces to myself and it would it would help me sleep. So it, it was just kind of a habit I was in from a very early age. Okay. And you also did, I remember when I first met you, you had done, I don't remember what the piece was. It was a YouTube video in a very deep Irish accent. Uh, oh, Do you remember? Really, um, I don't, but uh, isn't this terrible now? I really should. My husband keeps saying, why don't you, you know, write down every book you index and say, oh my God, by this point, I, I don't know where to start. But um I actually don't remember that, but it sounds like something I would have done, I guess. So, but I think yes. you, you also knew me when we were doing Sweet Tarts, right? When we did... Uh, yes, you were doing a, a, a web series. Yeah. Yes. I mean, whatever happened to web series? There's no web series. I mean, there are some, but I think they're all podcasts now, aren't they? Well, actually, I think they are. And I think a lot of, of what's um, taken that up is the fact that places like Netflix, which are so hungry for content... And all kinds of, you know, I mean, how many platforms are there now, right? Um, I think that that a lot of things that would have been kind of higher end web series have just been hoovered up by um, by platforms like that, which is, you know, not a bad thing. Um, and of course, podcasts, and I love podcasts, and I think, you know, they're they're basically they're old timey radio shows, right? Like they're we're back to they're just with different emphasis and different music, but you know, um, I think that that's kind of the way those two things have split, and they're wonderful, both of them. It's actually very interesting with Netflix because I know an animator here in Ottawa who I think has done some work for Disney and has never been credited on any of the work that he's done. And Netflix finally uh, picked up one of the series that um, that his studio is working on and he finally got credit as, oh, a, as a layout animator. So Netflix, for all the flack that it, t- it takes, you know, mm. 
I think for independence, it's it's a uh, it's a good opportunity to get some oh, some well, money. Oh, yeah. all, and it, well, it's it's really everything has been so revolutionized, especially when you consider now, of course, you know the the hit that um, that ordinary kind of network television has taken, and uh, I I don't think. I mean, I don't think we're going to see any of this <laughs> slowing down. Now, unfortunately, as you doubtless know, um, Quibi, you know, the the little, the short form yes. place, of course, 2020 was absolutely the, <laughs> the worst year they could have picked to launch. And how were they to know that? But I have a feeling that actually, and I know there are a lot of people who just think it's a stupid idea to begin with, and maybe it is, but I have a feeling that there will be something vaguely Quibi-like in future in terms of short form stuff. And I think that's going to open up, you know, more uh, opportunities for more people as well. It, it is one of the, one, maybe one of the few um, elements of kind of internet-based communication that, that really is, is a little bit more, you know, not entirely, but it is a little bit more about that democratization that the internet was supposed to bring. Um, right. Yeah. I think we're, I think we haven't seen the last of those kinds of things. I would agree with you on that for sure. Uh, Kel, we have about uh, about a minute left. Mm -hmm. So last question for you. Mm -hmm. What book would you recommend? What's your like your 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 book of golden rules for writing? <laughs> oh my heavens. You know, I honestly don't have one. There are so many of them. So many. Millions of them by now. And a lot of them say more or less the same thing. The thing I would I would recommend to anybody who wants to grow as a writer, wants to become a good writer, read, 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 read everything. If you don't like reading all that much, then read in the field that you want to become good in, read and write. It, they really are skills like so many others that are developed and that grow by doing. And reading good writers' writing and practicing your writing yourself, you know, getting experienced those are the things that count. They really do work. Wonderful. Well, on that note, Dr. Kel Pirro, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure um, speaking with you and getting your opinion on, on writing, on editing, on modern communications. It's been, it's been swell. Well, thank you very much. I've enjoyed this enormously. <laughs>